The following are real events based on first-hand historical documents featuring both real and imagined dialogue and contain adult language and situations. Listener discretion is advised. How long have you been in the snare of the devil? How long have you been in the snare of the devil? The Salem Witch Trials of 1692 was the deadliest witch hunt of colonial North America. By the end of the crisis, 19 people were hanged, one person was crushed to death, and at least five people died while imprisoned. This is their story. December 28, 1691. Dear Martha, we are in the most dreadful of seasons. Our little village is frozen in fear of savage Indians. The barbarians attacked a village in Maine, forcing their way into people's homes and burning them to the ground. We have taken in some of the refugees from the frontier war. You can see the terror on people's faces as we all wonder if our village will be next. The legislature has raised taxes to help pay for this war. They've even gone as far as issuing paper money, raising the cost of living even higher. We have petitioned Salem Town in hopes that they will recognize our village's independence, or at least only tax us for our own village's expenses. The crops have not come in again this winter, as the ground is frozen solid, allowing nothing to grow. We're not sure that there will be enough food to go around. There's rumors that a couple villagers are sick with smallpox. Again. 
Samuel has all but lost the faith and goodwill of his congregation. In October, the new committee of five refused to relinquish the ministry house and land that we were owed when he first took the ministership. Taxes have stopped being collected to pay his salary, and the congregation have even refused to provide firewood to warm the church and our home. We have relied on small, voluntary contributions from local villagers. The same villagers who had been less than kind to us since we have made our home among them. Sabbath attendance has plummeted. The unwavering commitment to Puritan values is also in steady decline. You and I know Samuel's undying devotion to deep ritual orthodoxy, but somehow these so-called faithful Puritans of Salem see that as overbearing and are making it their solemn duty to force our family out. On a personal note, Martha, Samuel and I have lost the baby that I was carrying since early winter. Samuel has thrown himself into his work and has made himself even more devout. But I just can't seem to shake this pervasive melancholy with nothing to busy my mind except for constant worry. I just do not see how things could get any worse. The one bright spot has been our niece Abigail taking residence with Samuel, Betty, and I. Abigail and Betty have always been so close. It has done us well to see the companionship the two girls provide each other in these unsteady times. I pray you do not distress too much over our current misfortunes. But do write back soon, Martha. Unchangingly yours. Elizabeth Paris. Salem, January 3rd, 1692. Let us return now to our series on the first verse of Psalm 110. Sit thou at my right hand, till I make thine enemies thy footstool. There is a spiritual warfare between the saved and the damned, not unlike the current frontier wars between good Puritans and the savage Indian. Luckily, the church is separated from the world, and it is the main drift of the devil to pull it all down. The devil is the grand enemy of the church, and is assisted by wicked and reprobate men. Comfortably. What seems to be the issue? I cannot find anything physically wrong with them. But the way they were shrieking and flailing about, there must be something wrong. We've tried fasting, we've tried prayer, and different home remedies, but nothing seems to make any improvement. 
If I had to make a determination, I would say these girls are under an evil hand. Salem, March 27th, 1692. We are occasioned by dreadful witchcraft that has broken out here with two church members being vehemently suspected for she-witches. This church contains devils as well as saints, and Christ knows who and how many. Indeed, we are either saints or devils. The scripture gives us no medium. None are worse than those who have been, and are not, and might be good, but will be not. I direct you to be deeply humbled by the presence of witches in our midst. I urge you to pray that God would not suffer devils in the guise of saints to associate with us. Further, ask the Lord to ensure that no true saint would ever be falsely accused. Should no devil partake in the Lord's Supper, if any were to do so, they would incur the hottest of God's wrath. No one could maintain communion with Christ and yet keep up fellowship with the devil. Salem, June, 1692. Judge John Hawthorne presiding with Judge John Corwin. And what did the body examinations show? The female committee's examinations showed a preternatural excretions of flesh between the pudendum and the anus much like teats and not usual in women, on the bodies of Bridget Bishop, Rebecca Nurse, and Elizabeth Proctor. I order them to be re-examined in six hours. And what have these new body examinations shown us? Upon further examination, Elizabeth Proctor and Bridget Bishop were found to be clear of any markings and Rebecca Nurse's markings appeared to be only dry skin. The Trials and Execution of Rebecca Nurse and Susanna Martin We, the jury, find Rebecca Nurse not guilty of witchcraft. You must reconsider. Did you not hear Rebecca call Goody Hobbs one of us during her testimony? Rebecca Nurse, what was your exact meaning in calling Goody Hobbs one of us? Miss Nurse, what did you mean? Rebecca! Miss Nurse, answer the question. We the jury find Rebecca Nurse 
guilty of witchcraft and sentence you to death by hanging. Do you know this woman? It is Goody Martin. She hath hurt me often. <laughs> what do you laugh at? Well, I may at such folly. Is this folly, the hurt of these persons? I never hurt a man, woman, or child. She has hurt me a great many times and pulls me down. <laughs> this woman hath hurt me a great many times. And what do you say to this? I have no hand in witchcraft. What did you do? Did not you give your consent? No, never in my life. What ails these people? I do not know. But what do you think? I do not desire to spend my judgment upon it. Do not you think they are bewitched? No, I do not think they are. Tell me your thoughts about them. Why, my thoughts are my own, when they are in. But when they are out, they are another's. We, the jury, find Susanna Martin guilty of witchcraft and sentence you to death by hanging. The Trials and Execution of George Jacobs Sr. and George Burroughs. <laughs> Here are them that accuse you of acts of witchcraft. Well, let us hear who they are, and what are they, and you laugh? Because I am falsely accused, your worships, all of you, do you think this is true? Nay, what do you think? I never did it. Who did it? Don't ask me. Why should we not ask you? Sarah Churchwell accuseth you, and there she is. I am as innocent as the child born tonight. I have lived 33 years here in Salem. What then? If you can prove that I'm guilty, I will lie under it, Sarah. Last night, I was afflicted at Deacon Ingersoll's, and Mary Walcott said it was a man with two staffs. It was my master. Pray do not accuse me. I am as clear as your worships. You must do right judgment. What book did he bring you, Sarah? The same that the other woman brought. The devil can go in any shape. Did he not appear on the other side of the river and hurt you? Did not you see him? Yes, he did. Look there. She accuseth you to your face. She chargeth you that you hurt her twice. Is it not true? What would you have me say? I have never wronged no man in word nor deed. Here are three evidences. You tax me for a wizard, you may as well tax me for a buzzard. I have done no harm. Is it no harm to afflict these? I never did it. But how comes it to be in your appearance? The devil can take any likeness. Not without their consent. Please, your worship, it is untrue. I never showed the book. I am as silly about these things as the child born last night. That is your saying. You argue and you have lived so long, but what then Cain might live long before he killed Abel, and you might live long before the devil had so prevailed on you. Christ hath suffered three times for me. What three times? He suffered the cross and gallows. Had us good confess if you are guilty. Have you heard that I have any witchcraft? I know you lived a wicked life. Let her make it out. Doth he ever pray in his family? Not unless by himself. Why do you not pray in your family? 
I cannot read. Well, but you may pray for all that. Can you say the Lord's Prayer? Let us hear you. Uh, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be, hallowed be thy name, thy Thy kingdom, thy kingdom, thy, I, I, I know no more. Sarah Churchill, when you wrote in the book you were showed your master's name, you said, Yes, sir. If she say so, if you do not know it, what will you say? But she saw you, or your likeness, tempt her to write. One in my likeness? The devil may present my likeness. Were you not frightened, Sarah Churchill, when the representation of your master came to you? Yes. Well, burn me or hang me. I will stand in the truth of Christ. I know nothing of it. We, the jury, find George Jacobs guilty of witchcraft and sentence you to death by hanging. Reverend George Burroughs, do you have anything to say before you are to be hanged? I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy his body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. He lies! A great black man stands at his shoulder and dictates scripture and holy words to him. This man is no witch! Save him! Stop the execution! We commit murder! This proves nothing. The devil can quote scripture for his own purposes. This is but cunning artifice of the evil one to save his servant. Salem, September 11th, 1692. I am compelled to spend this Sabbath reflecting on the condemnation of six witches at a court at Salem, one of whom being Martha Corey, a member of our own church. Revelation 17:14 speaks of a war with the Lamb or predicts God's ultimate triumph in our days. How industrious and vigorous is the bloody French monarch and his confederates against Christ and his interest in this very land and some neighboring places. How many, 
what multitudes of witches and wizards had the devil instigated with utmost violence to attempt the overthrow of our religion. I warn you all of internal as well as external enemies. Previously, witches had been found only in barbarous deserts, but now they were common in the civilist and religious parts. So many of this damned brood of witches having been found in a village of 14 houses underscores the danger of the combined threats from both the visible and invisible worlds. The Trial and Execution of Giles Corey Giles Corey, you've been accused of tormenting Abigail Hobbs and Anne Putnam. How do you plead? Not guilty. Will you be tried by God and your country? Will you be tried by God and your country? Answer the question before you, Giles Corey. Will you be tried by God and your country? If you continue to stand mute and refuse trial, we will have no other option than to force you to speak using pien forte et dur. Very well. Giles Corey, since you have refused to stand trial for your accused crimes, we will force an answer out of you by placing a wooden board over top of you and slowly add heavy rocks until you comply us with an answer. Before we begin, we will give you one last opportunity to confess to witchcraft. Begin adding the weight. <coughs> Giles Corey, do you confess to being a witch? Add more weight. <coughs> Giles Corey, do you confess to being a witch? It is of no use to expect me to yield. There could be but one way of ending this matter. You may as well pile on the rocks. Add more weight. <coughs> Giles Corey, do you confess to being a witch? More weight. <coughs> <coughs> Massachusetts, October, 1692. And I, Increase Mather, can say forthright that I wholeheartedly denounce the use of spectral evidence in any witch child, particularly of the court of Oyer and Termire and their continual reliance on such a faulty body of proof. It has no real purpose in any established hall of justice. For it were better that ten suspected witches should escape than one innocent person be condemned. Governor Sir William Phipps the season and manner of doing it is such that the court of Oyer and to minor count themselves thereby dismissed. As to the sitting next week, we should move it no more and that the court must fall.
Salem, 1697. Samuel Seawall, sensible of the reiterated strokes of God upon himself and family, and being sensible that as to the guilt contracted, Upon the opening of the late commission of Euler and Terminer at Salem, he is, upon many accounts, more concerned than any that he knows of, desires to take the blame and shame of it, asking pardon of men and especially desiring prayers that God, who has unlimited authority, would pardon that sin and all other his sins. The jury's apology. Some that have been of several juries have given forth a paper signed with our own hands in these words. We whose names are underwritten, being in the year 1692, called to serve as jurors in court in Salem, on trial of many who were by some suspected guilty of doing acts of witchcraft upon the bodies of sundry persons. We confess that we ourselves were not capable to understand nor able to withstand the mysterious delusions of the powers of darkness and prince of the air, but were for want of knowledge in ourselves and better information from others prevailed with to take up with such evidence against the accused as on further consideration and better information we justly fear was insufficient for the touching the lives of any. Deuteronomy 17.6, whereby we fear we have been instrumental with others, though ignorantly and unwittingly, to bring upon ourselves and this people of the Lord the guilt of innocent blood, which sin the Lord saith in Scripture he would not pardon. 2 Kings 24.4, that is, we suppose in regard of his temporal judgments, we do therefore hereby signify to all in general and to the surviving sufferers in especial our deep sense of and sorrow to our errors in acting on such evidence to the condemning of any person. And do hereby declare that we justly fear that we were sadly deluded and mistaken for which we are much disquieted and distressed in our minds, and do thereby humbly beg forgiveness, first of God for Christ's sake, for this our error, and pray that God would not impute the guilt of it to ourselves nor others. And we also pray that we may be considered candidly and right by the living sufferers as being then under the power of a strong and general delusion, utterly unacquainted with and not experienced in matters of that nature. We do heartily ask forgiveness of you all, whom we have justly offended, and do declare according to our present minds, we would none of us do such things again on such grounds, for we would bless the inheritance of the Lord that he may be entreated for the land. Foreman Thomas Fisk, Thomas Purley, Senior William Fisk, John Peabody, John Batchelor, Thomas Perkins, Thomas Fisk, Junior Samuel Sather, John Dane, Andrew Elliott, Joseph Edith, Henry Herrick Senior. Salem, seventeen oh six.
I desire to be humbled before God for that sad and humbling providence that befell my father's family in the year about 92, that I then being in my childhood should by such a providence of God be made an instrument for the accusing of several persons of a grievous crime, whereby their lives were taken away from them, whom now I have just grounds and good reason to believe they were innocent persons and that it was a great delusion of Satan that deceived me in that sad time whereby I justly fear I have been instrumental with others, though ignorantly and unwittingly, to bring upon myself and this land the guilt of innocent blood. Though what was said or done by me against any person I can truly and uprightly say before God and man, I did it not out of anger, malice, or ill will to any person, for I had no such thing against one of them. But what I did was ignorantly being deluded by Satan, and particularly as I was a chief instrument of accusing of goodwife nurse and her two sisters, I desire to lie in the dust and to be humbled for it. In that case, I was a cause with others of so sad a calamity to them and to their families, for which cause I desire to lie in the dust and earnestly beg forgiveness of God from all those unto whom I have given just cause of sorrow and offense whose relations were taken away or accused. The Salem Witch Crisis and resulting trials were a series of afflictions, court hearings, prosecutions, and executions involving witchcraft beginning in January 1692 and ending in May 1693. While mostly centered around the colonial Massachusetts town of Salem, Salem Village, and present-day Danvers, accusations and arrests were made in neighboring towns of Andover and Topsfield. During this time, more than 200 people were accused. 30 were found guilty, 19 of whom were executed by hanging, one was pressed to death for refusing to plead, and at least five died in jail, making it the deadliest witch hunt in colonial North America. Salem is a historic coastal city in Essex County, Massachusetts, located in the North Shore region. Prior to English colonization, indigenous populations occupied the land in northern Massachusetts for thousands of years. The peninsula that would become Salem was known as Namkeg by the indigenous people who lived there. In 1626, a group of immigrants from Cape Ann, led by Roger Conant, began colonizing Namkeg. Two years later, by order of the Massachusetts Bay Company, 
Conant stepped down and was replaced by John Encott. To recognize this peaceful transfer to a new government, the name Namkag was changed to Salem, derived from the Hebrew word for peace. In 1629, the Massachusetts Bay Charter was issued creating the Massachusetts Bay Colony with Matthew Croddick as its governor in London and Endcott as its governor in the colony. The passage of this charter by the monarch of England gave the town of Salem the rights of autonomy and self-rule. John Winthrop was elected governor in late 1629 and arrived in Massachusetts in 1630 marking one of the seminal events that began the Puritan Great Migration. The Puritan Great Migration saw 80,000 people leave England and migrate to Ireland, New England, the West Indies, and the Netherlands. The Winthrop fleet, led by newly elected Governor John Winthrop, included 11 ships and delivered between 700 and 1,000 Puritan passengers, including livestock, to Massachusetts Bay Colony. Migration continued until Parliament was reconvened in 1640 when the scale dropped off sharply. English Puritans left their homeland en masse to escape religious persecution and find a new home where they could freely practice their faith. Puritans, for their part, effectively colonized and displaced enough of the indigenous population to settle a Puritan stronghold in Massachusetts Bay Colony securing a settlement to live out their strict religious lifestyles. The Puritans of the 16th and 17th century were members of the Protestant group in England and New England who regarded the reformation of the Church of England under Elizabeth as incomplete and sought to simplify and regulate forms of worship. Puritan practices follow a more strict moral code than most religions. The term Puritan was first used as an insult by traditional Anglicans to those who wished to purify the Church of England and refers to two distinct groups. Separating Puritans, such as the Plymouth colonists, believed Church of England was corrupt and that true Christians must separate themselves from it. Non-separating Puritans, such as the colonists who colonized Massachusetts Bay Colony, believed in reform but not separation. Puritans believed in forming churches through voluntary compacts as the idea of compacts or covenants was central to the Puritans' conception of social, political, and religious organizations. The Puritan faith set forth the belief that Jesus and participation in the sacraments alone would not guarantee one's salvation. One cannot choose salvation, for that is the privilege of God alone. All features of salvation are determined by God's sovereignty, including choosing those who will be saved and those who will receive God's irresistible grace. A central element in Puritan social and theological life was the notion of the covenant or contract between God and His elect. All relationships between God and men, ministers and congregations, magistrates and members of their community, and men and their families were envisioned in terms of a covenant which rested on consent and mutual responsibilities. Puritan churches did not hold that all parish residents should be full church members, but rather consist of the elect. As a test of election, many New England churches began to require applicants for church membership to testify to their experience of God in the form of autobiographical conversion narratives. Since citizenship 
was tied to church membership, the motivation for experiencing conversion was secular, civil, and religious in nature. This covenant had to be renewed and accepted by each individual believer. Puritans believe that everything that happens to the individual and society is a sign of God's pleasure or displeasure. This belief instilled the need to repent and return to the faith or face God's wrath. Puritans held fast our solemn days of humiliation to pray for God's mercy and help. Puritans prayed about everything and on fast days no food was eaten from sunup to sundown. Daily work was set aside and people gathered at meeting houses to hear a sermon lamenting the reasons for God's displeasure. After worship, they were expected to spend the rest of the day in sober reflection on the problem. Puritans attended church every Sunday morning for three hours. Long afternoon sermons were also held. Town members were required by law to attend church services even if they had not taken the covenant and become full members. Outside of church, women and young girls stayed at home to attend to housework, while the men and boys worked on farms and hunted. Children received an education based on the Bible, which taught them how to be upstanding citizens. Puritan life in the Massachusetts Bay Colony was often stressful and fun was considered irreligious. Puritans did not observe any holidays because they believed that celebrations had roots in paganism. Aside from a strong belief in God, Puritans also held strong beliefs in Satan and his influence in the world. Known as the invisible world, all disease, natural catastrophes, and bad fortune was attributed to the work of the devil. Prior witchcraft cases in New England and Europe instilled the belief that Satan recruits witches and wizards to work for him. Salem, at the beginning of 1692, was a village under duress. The disastrous frontier wars against indigenous populations raged all throughout New England and the constant threat of violent Native American raids created an atmosphere of intense anxiety. To pay for the war, the government had increased taxes and had been forced to issue paper money, causing rapid inflation and a downward spiral in an economy already hit hard by the unusually cold weather, drought, and crop failures. The announcement of a new charter and a new royal governor created uncertainty. A regional smallpox outbreak heightened tensions. Worst of all, there was a decline in an unwavering commitment to Puritan values. Declining Sabbath worship attendance threatened the New England way. Many feared that the Puritan experiment was in danger of becoming irrelevant and perhaps even coming to an end. And so it would appear in the eyes of townspeople that Satan was very much alive in the town of Salem in 1692. Between January 15th and 19th of 1692, Elizabeth Betty Paris and Abigail Williams, aged 9 and 12, both living in the home of Betty's father, Reverend Samuel Paris, began exhibiting strange behavior, making strange noises and complaining of headaches. Tichuba, one of the family's enslaved Caribbeans, experiences visions of the devil and swarms of witches, according to her later testimony. After traditional remedies and prayers fail to cure the afflicted girls in the Paris home, a doctor diagnoses the evil hand as the cause. Symptoms of afflictions varied a great deal from person to person, ranging from forgetfulness, inability to speak or hear, motionlessness, staring, rigidity, 
screaming, babbling, making choking sounds, barking, and convulsions. Many complained of being visited by evil or known specters who bid them to harm themselves or others. Often, these specters asked the afflicted to mark or sign their book, thereby making a covenant with the devil. Many of the afflicted were haunted by their fellow townspeople, and often just the sight or touch of their afflictor would cause them to convulse. What was actually going on here? Were the afflicted truly possessed, or was there something else going on? The truth of the matter is that the exact cause of the Salem afflictions cannot be known, but historians and scholars of the Salem witch crisis have offered many potential explanations. Some have posited that being under the care of enslaved servant Tichuba sparked a stimulation of imagination in Betty Paris and Abigail Williams. Tichuba would share stories from her life in the Caribbean and was later accused of discussing and encouraging witchcraft with the impressionable young girls. Others attribute this widespread hysteria to teenage boredom and a byproduct of the strict and humorless Puritan lifestyle of the late 17th century. Confessing witches bolstered the credibility of earlier accusations and charges. The magistrates and judges came under fire for being receptive to accusations of witchcraft as a way to shift the blame for their own wartime failure efforts. This was further exacerbated by their willingness to admit problematic spectral evidence as legitimate proof of witchcraft. Spectral evidence was baseless testimony in which witnesses claimed that the accused appeared to them and did them harm in a dream or a vision with no way to prove these things actually happened. Sometimes, old feuds between the accusers and the accused spurred charges of witchcraft. One unlikely theory suggests the presence of convulsive ergotism, a disease caused by eating infected rye that can produce hallucinations. A more likely theory suggests the presence of post-traumatic stress disorder and other related emotional trauma conditions developed from prior traumatic experiences. For example, first-hand dealings with frontier wars, loss of standing due to poor economy, crop failure, etc. Some scholars even admit a fair amount of faking in terms of actual possession occurred. On February 25, 1692, Mary Silby, a neighbor of the Parrish family, advises John Indian, a second enslaved Caribbean of the Parrish family, to make a witch's cake to discover the names of the witches. This only caused the torments to increase. Anne Putnam Jr. and Elizabeth Hubbard were the first two to show signs of affliction outside of the parish house. On February 26th, Betty and Abigail accused Tichuba as their afflictor. Several neighbors and ministers were asked to observe the girl's behavior and questioned Tichuba. On February 27th, Anne and Elizabeth accused Sarah Good, a local homeless mother, and Sarah Osborne, who is known as a scandalous person around town, of witchcraft. On February 29th, arrest warrants were issued in Salem Town for the first three accused witches, Tichuba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne. The accusations were based on complaints of Thomas Putnam and others and made before local magistrates Jonathan Corwin and John Hathorne. Examinations began in March of 1692. So many were accused and confessed to witchcraft that by May of 1692, 
Governor William Phipps commissioned for a court of Oyer, meaning to hear, and Terminer, meaning to decide, and appoints John Hathorne, Nathaniel Saltonstall, Bartholomew Gedney, Peter Surgent, Samuel Seawall, Walt Still Winthrop, and Lieutenant Governor Will Stoughton as judges. Between June and September 1692, 20 people were convicted and executed, 19 hung and one pressed to death for witchcraft. For the most part, the executions were staged on Gallows Hill on Proctor's Ledge. The names of the executed include Bridget Bishop, age 60, hung June 10th, Sarah Good, age 39, Rebecca Nurse, age 71, Elizabeth Howe, age 56 to 57, Susanna Martin, age 70, Sarah Wilds, age 65, hung July 19th, Reverend George Burroughs, age 42, George Jacobs Sr., age 83, Martha Carrier, age unknown, John Proctor, age 59, John Willard, age 35, hung August 19th. Giles Corey, aged 81, pressed to death September 19th. Martha Corey, aged 72. Mary Eastie, aged 58. Mary Parker, aged 55. Alice Parker, age unknown. Anne Pudator, aged 71. Rameau Red, age unknown. Margaret Scott, aged 76 to 77. Samuel Wardwell Sr., age 49. Hung September 22nd. Though all of the over 200 accused were eventually questioned of their involvement in witchcraft, on October 12, 1692, Governor William Phipps issued a declaration dissolving the court of Oyer and Terminer. No other person accused of witchcraft in Salem in 1692 was executed after September 22nd. The last person to be freed from prison was Tichuba in April 1693, who was the first accused, confessed, and jailed in March of 1692. The trials were a crude representation of justice that has garnered much criticism even during the proceedings. Relying heavily on highly criticized spectral evidence, the court involved little to no credible evidence and instead relied on emotion and fear to convict and execute defendants. The courtroom devolved into spectacle that often saw the afflicted act out their afflictions and accusations in front of packed meeting houses. The judge's line of questioning often implied an already assumed guilt of those accused and on several occasions even instructed the jury to reconsider their not guilty verdicts. The court of Oyer and Termeyer tried 28 people for witchcraft and all 28 were found guilty. Prior to 1692, Massachusetts courts produced only 8 guilty verdicts for witchcraft in 31 decisions, a 26% conviction rate. The Massachusetts Bay Colony engaged in an active cover-up believed to be the first of its kind in colonial America by issuing a ban on any publications about the Salem witch trials. In 1695, Thomas Malley, a Salem Quaker, published Truth Held Forth and Maintained, a stinging criticism of the Massachusetts government, including the trials. Authorities seized and burned Malley's books and imprisoned him for a year for seditious libel. Several other books written by those with first-hand involvement with the trials were eventually released in the years immediately following the crisis. 
These first-hand accounts were often critical of the proceedings, particularly of their reliance on spectral evidence. The Salem Witch Crisis was the beginning of the end for the Puritan Covenant in colonial America. On October 31, 2001, Acting Massachusetts Governor Jane Swift signed an act that cleared the names of those executed for witchcraft in 1692. On May 27, 2022, Massachusetts lawmakers formally exonerated Elizabeth Johnson Jr., clearing her name 329 years after she was wrongly convicted of witchcraft and sentenced to death in 1693, making her the last of the convicted Salem witches to be pardoned. Johnson, while never officially pardoned, was never executed when Governor Phipps threw out her punishment as the magnitude of the gross miscarriage of justice in Salem sank in. Heavy Head Season 3 Episode 2 Witchcraft in the Whispers is written and produced by Tanner Hines. Dr. Griggs, Female Committee, Jury, Cotton Mather, Increase Mather, Crowd Members, and George Jacobs voiced by Tanner Hines. Elizabeth Paris, Susanna Martin, and Anne Carr Putnam, voiced by Anna Schneider. Abigail Williams, Anne Putnam Jr., voiced by Cherie Allen. Betty Paris, Elizabeth Hubbard, and Sarah Churchill, voiced by Gretchen Schultz. Judge John Hathorne and Reverend Samuel Parrish, voiced by Sean Braley. Giles Corey, voiced by Giles Chickering. George Burroughs, Governor Phipps, and Samuel Seawall, voiced by Christian Grant. Narration and art design by Evan Verrilli. Award-winning original music by Real Blue Heartache Kids. The music is available wherever you buy or stream music. If you or a loved one is experiencing a psychiatric emergency and live in the United States, please text or call 988 or 1-800-273-8255 or text HOME to 741-741 for free and confidential support 24-7-365 from the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and the Crisis Text Line. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram using the handle at HeavyHeadPod. Subscribe to our official YouTube channel, HeavyHeadPodcast. You can email us at HeavyHeadPod at gmail.com. Please rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed the show, please share us with a loved one. Lastly, merch is available at heavyhead.bigcartel.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again next month. Until then, take care of yourself.